Welcome to Grace Point. Uh, welcome to a study that we're going through right now called The End of the Rope. And as we talk about this series, I want you to be finding the book of 2 Corinthians, or in the words of Donald Trump, 2 Corinthians, if you watch the news. Um, 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, be finding it. And uh, we're going to be there in just a few moments in chapter 12. Um, you know, talking about uh, Trump and all the other people out there running for office. You know, this is a painful season that we're in right now as a nation. Uh, so we need to be on a serious note, praying for our, our nation, praying for our leaders. But I am now a write-in candidate. Feel free to write me in. Uh, all right, and I'll write you in and, uh, we'll hopefully we'll get, uh, get the right person in, but it's painful, uh, looking across our land at this, uh, at this juncture and time. So we must be buckling down in prayer. But, uh, when you talk about pain, uh, I'm a person that is averse to pain. Uh, I don't like pain. Uh, I will be the first one to go to the medicine cabinet and grab as many ibuprofen as I can uh, when pain comes up on my body. Uh, I, if, it, if that does not kick it, I will be the first one to go at, be at the doctor's office setting there in the office before they even see their first patient waiting out the, the time I need to to get in to see the doctor to alleviate the pain that I might be going through. And so I'm just, I just, I don't like that pain element when it comes in. When you go and see the doctor, you know immediately what happens is they begin to ask you a series, a battery of questions uh, to try to determine whether they're trying to diagnose you, where you're at, what's going on, what happened, what put you in this situation, what brought this pain into your body. And I think as we, before we go any further in our series dealing with pain and into the rope, I think we need to take some time and ask some diagnostic questions. Um, I think we need to take some time and, and diagnose the pain that maybe some of us are going through. Some of it is uh, you didn't bring it on yourself. Some of it you might have brought it on yourself. Some of it you unconsciously brought it on yourself. And I want us to kind of, I'm going to give three areas of pain today. And we're going to talk about uh, real quickly and three diagnostic questions. Now, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list on pain sources or sources of pain. So please do not see that as this, an exhaustive list. But these three are certainly three that may, may, maybe not even will come to your mind. And so I want to make sure these are there. So the first uh, common source of pain is self-inflicted pain. Now, again, you're not masochist, but because of a fallen nature inside of us, because we're broken people and we live in a broken world, we will bring on pain ourselves. All you have to do is go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you can see them and the choices they made and the voices they listened to and the pain that they brought on. Literally the very next generation you find murder happening. And you find that actually throughout the book of Genesis. It's incredible how pain so quickly changes everything. And especially when it's brought on ourselves because of the choices that we make. Because we live by our own standards, our own morals, our own ways of thinking. Uh, it becomes a, a very dicey game that we play when we think that we can do something and we will not pay the consequences for that. Galatians 6 warns us against that, that we will reap what we sow, okay? So be careful about that. Here's a diagnostic question for yourself, though. Have I violated one of God's timeless moral laws? 
You need to ask yourself that. Now, you won't know if you have if you're not in the Word, okay? This book is not a book I just carry up here and put it down on the the table with me. You have to be in the Word to know. You have to be listening. The Spirit of God can be speaking to you, but you can negate that real quickly as just your conscience. But it may be the Spirit of God pointing you to the Word of God. You could be doing the relationship thing all wrong and wonder why it's not working out. And you can say, hey, we're two consenting adults here. We're adults. We're consenting. This is okay. We can do that. But at the same time, if we're violating a moral code of God, we're bringing something on ourselves. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says this, Give honor to marriage. Remain faithful to the one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. So think about it like that. Stinginess is one of those things that you wouldn't necessarily put on your list of things that you do wrong, but stinginess can result in pain of relationships. Proverbs eleven twenty six says, people curse the one who hoards gain. All right, who hoards grain, excuse me, uh, or that'd be gain as well. All right, so laziness is also one of those undisciplined lifestyles. If you live an undisciplined lifestyle, idleness leaves them hungry, Proverbs 19 uh, talks about. The person who chooses wrong friends. If you're not good at choosing relationships and friends and people you hang with, beware of that. Associate with fools and get yourself in trouble, Proverbs 13, 20 says. So what we need to do is we need to see this is an instruction book for life that we're constantly reading, constantly digesting, constantly processing, constantly vetting our own life and our own choices because we might be bringing on some of the very pain that we're feeling. There's also another type of pain. It's a generational pain. This is almost an unconscious pain that you might go through. You might go through a, uh, something that you take on. You do something because your parents did something because they did. their parents did something and you just do it this way. Abraham lied twice about Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was marked by lies. Jacob lied at almost, <laughs> to almost everyone. And 10 of Jacob's boys lied uh, uh, straight to dad about Joseph's death. So there's a family sin, a generational sin, that was literally being passed down from one generation to the other. Now here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to cause you to get really still, really quiet in your home when nobody else is around. And you're going to look at your family tree and you're going to say, what about my family am I repeating? And I am bringing on. And if I'm not careful to stop it in this generation, guess what? The next generation will do the same thing. We're not dissing our parents and we're not, we're not disrespecting them. We're, no, we're actually calling out sin what it is and trying to repent of it and get it out of our life. Nehemiah, before he ever rebuilt the walls, you go back and read Nehemiah, he spent a chapter confessing the sins of the previous generation. Now, why did he do that? It wasn't his sins. He couldn't rebuild the city. He couldn't rebuild life without getting rid of the sins of the past generations. Think about it in our own, in our own culture. We've abolished slavery, right? You know, no longer do we have whites and blacks separated in slavery but have we abolished have we abolished racism no because that's an issue of the heart 
That's an issue of generational sin that goes on and on. Whether you're, whether you're, uh, you're, you're dark skin color, you're light skin color, or you're, you're black or you're brown or whatever, we get this racism going on. And even though there's laws preventing this, there are still that racism of our heart that we have to be very, very careful about. So here's the diagnostic question. Are, are there accepted ways? Are there accepted ways that I live that need to be pushed out? When I say accepted, they're almost unconscious. They're there. I live with them. I function with them. And I will pass them on. But I'm not going to focus on those areas and sources of pain today. And I may not even focus on your source or area of pain today. But this next one, we need to lean in on. And it's what I want to call a development pain. could involve spiritual warfare, but it's a development pain. Where actually the pain that's going on inside of us God is using, it's being tested. You look at the life of Job. What did Job do wrong? What generational sin did he do that caused him to go through the pain that he had, that he went through? No, it was a development. It was a testing. It was a proving kind of pain that he went through. Think about Hannah and her barrenness and her weeping day after day, year after year, cycle after cycle of being barren as a mother or as, as a woman. But she becomes a mother. And Samuel becomes her child, the pain that she went through. Think about the death of Lazarus. Think about the miracles of Jesus, but zero in on the death of Lazarus. Go back and reread that. And you see the pain and you see the hurt and you see the mourning and you see the grief that's going on. And what does God do is he uses that painful moment to capture their hearts, to develop believers out of that. What is God doing? Listen, we need to understand something about life. I think we've got the formula kind of all wrong in the computers of our life. Listen, God is more concerned. This is a good life principle. God's more concerned about your character than He is your comfort. Understand, your character is more valuable to God than your comfort, my comfort in life. So here's a diagnostic question for us to consider. How is God editing my life? What is God proving about my life? Through this painful moment, through this season of life, through this time in crisis that I'm going through, through this move, this shake-up, this change, this whatever that's happened to me, what is God trying to do in me? Because if you knock off the fact that you're not self-destructing because of the sins of your life, and if you, and if you get rid of the, the skeletons out of the closet because of generational sins, and all you're left with is, God, I really think my heart's clean. I really think my hands are clean. I really think my life's clean. Why the pain? Why the pain? Now, you've got to do the dirty work first. You've got to examine yourself first. When you come up and you go, God, why the pain? Then you have to go to the next and say, God, what are you doing? How are you editing? How are you chiseling? How are you testing? How are you improving uh, my life? We talked about week one, the whole idea of no pain, no gain. And that idea that that what God is doing many times in our trials and our troubles of, of life is He is putting us in this pressure cooker so that we might come out so that purpose clause, we might come out perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's the aim of His life. Again, He's more concerned about your character than He is your comfort, and that verse proves it exactly right there. Last week we talked about how God wants to make us better and not bitter. Sometimes pain makes us bitter. And, and how do we live a better life 
through adversity as we consider God. And we kind of broke that down a little bit. Now listen, there's so much more to this than you hearing me in this monologue of me talking and you listening. There's so much more that needs to go into this. Whether you're in a communitas group or you're, just, you're going to do it in your own home, I encourage you to take the Bible study notes. There's a QR code. we got it up on the screen. It's in your notes. Listen, zap it. Go online. Find those notes. Process it through as an individual. Process it through as a family. Process it through with your children. Process it through with your spouse. Whatever pains you're going through, process it through in a group, in a group of other people, of like-minded. I want to talk today about the Why? trying to make sense out of the sufferings of our life. And we're going to look at today at one of the passages that has intrigued me a lot of my life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When you look at this, you're finding the story of a life of Paul. and He's telling his story. He's telling his story about how he experienced something absolutely incredible. The apostle Paul, you've got to appreciate Paul. The life that he lived before as Saul, as a persecutor of the church, how God drastically changed his life. I mean, he has one of the best stories in the New Testament about somebody's total life transformation in a matter of hours, moments even. And you have this, I don't want to call it a near-death experience in Second Corinthians chapter 12 because it's not that, okay? We hear a lot about near-death experiences and people write books out of those and movies come out of those. We're not talking about a near-death experience. Paul talks about phrases like being caught up. He was fully there, okay? It wasn't because he had a bad falafel the night before that he's having a bad dream and he's dreaming about heaven. But he has this vision and he's gone there and he goes to this place. He calls it the third heaven. He calls it paradise. And as we think about him going there, it's an incredible story that he gets to see firsthand. And he comes back. In fact, let's just read a little bit of it from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Let's follow along. I know a man, and he speaks in the third person here out of, out of a form of humility. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, So this is something he's recalling 14 years back ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Now, when you talk about third heaven, what's that? Well, we live, and again, we live in one atmosphere, okay? We're breathing it in, breathing it out, breathing it in, breathing it out right now. We're unconsciously living in the first atmosphere. And then he speaks of a a second atmosphere of the heavens, the galaxies, the the stars, and even even in the time of of the Bible, they they know that there's this and they know that there's that. I mean, they can see that at night uh, as they're watching their sheep by night. And, you know, they can see the stars, they can see the galaxies. They don't know them, they don't understand them. I know Galileo and the whole story there, but there's there's a lot of truth that they understood something. And Paul says, "No, no, no, I wasn't here, and I wasn't there. I was there." I was in a third heaven, way, way, way out there. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So here it is. He he tells this story of, of his own amazing experience with God. Isn't that awesome? I mean, he's caught up. He sees this heaven. He, he comes back. He can't even talk about it. He can't put it into words. I can't explain to you what I saw. 
But then the amazing thing happens. It's like a turn of events. Like it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even fit here because God chose him for this. And then you go to verse 7. It says, and to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation that I just spoke of. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He talks about this thorn. He talks about weakness again and again throughout this passage of Scripture. In fact, the, the idea of weakness is a lot of people to try to estimate. What is this thorn in the flesh? They guessed a lot of different things. And in fact, I tried to find as many different uh, possibilities that, that have been out there, have been, have been laid up. You know, what is the thorn in the flesh? What is this thorn? What is this thorn? One was it's decaying physical uh, paralysis, maybe even the disease that he was dealing with. That's the number one that I've heard. Blindness, because in Galatians chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 6, he's referring to abilities to see. Maybe he's suffering from a decay, a degenerative eye problems. Another one is just that he had physical weakness. That the word when he refers to, again, and we'll see it a lot of different times, he refers to this weakness, this weakness, this weakness. And, and so is, it, is he physically weak? weak? And I, pro, I propose that it's not that one. Because he uses metaphorically the idea of weakness many different times. 45 different times in the New Testament, 39 times Paul uses it. 15 times from chapter 10 to chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians alone does he use the idea, the concept of weakness being something internal, something else inside of him. So what was it? A.T. Robertson speculated maybe it's malaria, uh, 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 Epilepsy, maybe insomnia, maybe migraines. Well, listen, we can spend all day trying to speculate. And here's what I didn't want to do in the week one. This is what I don't want to do in week three. Here, listen, listen, listen. I don't want us to, to compare wounds. I don't even want us to get into my pain's worse than your pain and my hurt's worse than your hurt. And so I'm actually very excited that we don't know what that thorn was. But whatever that thorn was, it was crippling. It was debilitating. It was, it was troubling him deeply. And he writes of this. And it's not the what that I want to focus on, but it's the why. Because that's what Paul focuses on. The what? Yeah, I wish I could fix the what, but I can't fix the what. So why do I have this pain and suffering? I want to give you three reasons from this passage of Scripture, and then we're going to break it down. Three reasons God gives us pain, allows us to experience pain. One is to reduce our pride. One is to reduce our pride. Pain reminds us of our limitations. Arrogance thinks we're invincible. Arrogance says you can do everything. Arrogance says you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Arrogance says that you are a self-made man or woman. But what, what, what pain will do is pain will say, no, you can't get out of bed today. No, you can't go to work today because you've just been laid off. And no, you can't enter into that relationship because that relationship is dissolved. And, and all of a sudden, you don't have control of you anymore. I don't have control over me anymore. And I realized then that pain has a little bit of the upper hand in my life. And when you break down why, 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 why after all this great revelation, it's because of the great revelation. 
It's because God trusted with Paul with so much. When you look at Paul's life, I mean, he had a, he had a, he had a story to tell. He has the most incredible conversion story recorded three times in one book, the book of Acts. Three times in one book. He's, ta- he's, he's replaying it twice, and another time is actually when it happened. It's one of the most incredible conversion stories was Paul's. So you put that as one of the things on his plate, uh, this tremendous opportunity to share his story before kings. You talk about an opportunity to be arrogant. Hey, I, 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 I spoke to the mayor. Well, no, I spoke to King Agrippa. I spoke to the king. I spoke to this person. So you got opportunity for pride. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. That's the number one bestseller in the world. Wouldn't you like to talk to Paul, the author of the best-selling book of all times? He had an opportunity for his pride to grow a little higher because of all of the influence that he had. He visited heaven. Who else has done that? And come back to tell about it. He's visited heaven. Here's all these opportunities. Here's all these promotions. Here's all this success in Paul's life. And then because of the success, verse 7, let's read it again. So to keep me from becoming conceited. To keep me from becoming conceited. He says it once and he says it at the end. To keep me from becoming conceited. God put a thorn in his life. God wanted to keep his character in check through pain. God allows pain to come into our life sometimes, listen to this very carefully, to counterbalance our life. We've got all this accomplishment, all this success, all this uh, resume that we have, that we've accumulated, all the self-madeness of our life, and then all of a sudden, insert pain, boom, counterbalances us, brings us our feet back to earth brings our heads out of the cloud. And all of a sudden, we get the message. And it's, it's one of the things about this, this was not just a, it was not an occasional, occasional pain that he was going through. It literally says that this pain was sent to harass him. And it was a messenger of Satan. He literally names his pain. Have you ever named your pain? Now your, 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 your pain may have a name, actually. And a social security number and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about that. All right. He names his pain. It's a messenger from Satan. The messenger's back again, reminding me again. And it's written in the present tense, so it's actually the idea of it happening every single day. And I look at this word harass, and it means literally to go up and sucker punch somebody. So here's Paul's life. All this promotion, all this success, all this accomplishment, everything's working out in his favor. All of a sudden, thorn in the flesh, punch in the gut, punch in the face. Here comes the pain. Why? To keep him from becoming conceited. Charles Colson, one of the most influential men, most of us were in this room were not even living whenever he was influencing President Nixon as one of his top advisors, ends up falling in the scandal of Watergate, ends up spending time in prison. This arrogant, powerful, influential, successful, accomplished pedigree as long as my arm and body finds himself in a prison cell. In that prison cell, he comes to know Christ. Writes a book called Born Again. Tells a story. Does his time, gets out of prison. But listen to this. 
Charles Colson never left prison. Oh, he, he left. He got out. He was glad to get out. But he went back. And he went back. And he went back. And he kept serving. He started a ministry called Prison Fellowship because he realized there's such a need inside the four walls of a prison. And this is what Charles Colson said about his legacy. The real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My great humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. Here is Colson. God removed him from the White House and transformed him in the jailhouse to use him for the rest of his life. Listen, that was a thorn in Colson's life. What thorn has God given you that you're having to wrestle with, but it's there to keep you from being conceited? Number two, lesson we learn, reason God gives us pain is to enlarge our prayers. Enlarge our prayers. Now, for most people, I would have to dare say, and I'm going to probably lump over, oversimplify this or overgeneralize this. Please forgive me if I'm not describing you. But most people's prayers, mine included, are short burst monologues with God. Short burst. In trouble, God, need help. God, bless this. God, thank you for the food. Amen. Let's dig in. Short burst of monologues with God. That's what most people's prayer life is. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I hope that's not you. But what if God was actually drawing us through our pain into a deeper communion with Him that even in our pain, we would experience Him, know Him at a deeper level? You might look at prayers as four phases of prayer. And again, most people, I think, move in this order. They First of all, they're talking at God. God, here's what I need. God, would you help here? God, why did you do this? These monologues, short bursts of, of, of prayers to God. Then we're talking to God. I like that one. We're not talking at God. We're now talking to God. Then we go to listening to God. This is whenever I, we've actually shut up. It's where we actually listen. God, what are you saying? And then being with God, just being with Him, 24-7 in communion with Him. Tim Keller says this, suffering drives us toward God to pray as we never would otherwise. At first, this experience of prayer is usually dry and painful, but if we are not daunted and we cling to Him, we will often find greater depths of experience and, yes, of divine love and joy than we thought possible. That's what prayer in pain, through pain, should look like. Look at verse 8 with me real quickly. You find Paul praying fervently. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. That is about as succinct as you get. Three times. Notice the the persistence that is in his prayer life. That he is not something that he just did once and said, God, why didn't you answer this? But God, please take this from me. God, please take this from me. God, please take this from me. 
He's very persistent. He's very fervent. I pleaded with the Lord. I pleaded with the Lord. He's also very specific. He says, God, would you take this from me? Now, if you look at some televangelists today, they would say that, listen, you need to have more faith and you need to, uh, you need to do this and you need to do that. Listen, I, I look at Paul's prayer and I go, I wish I did that. I wish that modeled my prayer life. If I get past one or two times of asking God, I'm ready to move on to Mike answering Mike's prayer. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want. You know, look at the life of Christ. He's literally about to die. He's, he's bleeding out uh, because his brain, is, his head is hemorrhaging blood. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is praying, God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will, not mine. So here's a question I want you to wrestle with today. What are you going to do when God says no to your prayer request? No. I know, you're, I know you're being fervent. I know you're being persistent. I know you're being very specific. But no. I'm not going to give you that promotion. No, I'm not going to restore that relationship. No. I'm not going to heal you. No. Is God being mean? No. He's not. He didn't even answer the Son of God's prayer the way the Son of God wanted it. The way Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, didn't get everything he wanted. Here's a life principle for you. Learning to live with God's no is learning to trust God's plan. You know far more than I do, God, and I'm just going to go with you. Prayer is not about getting what we want into heaven. It's about getting what heaven wants into us. We need to understand that. We know the, the popular AA prayer. And in fact, many of you all know it and maybe pray it yourself. It may be a prayer that you pray on a consistent basis. If you know this portion of this prayer, say it out loud with me. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a beautiful little prayer. AA has been praying it. it, it, it there's nothing wrong with that prayer. Um, one of the most influential men, Reinhold Niebuhr, in the 20th century was, was the one who wrote that prayer. It's a great prayer, but it doesn't end there. Here's the rest of the prayer that most of us don't pray. Living day, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next that's a complete prayer. God, I'll take the pathway of hardship. God, if you will not take this thorn from me, I will not let this thorn take you from me. If you do not take this thorn from me, I will not let this thorn take your peace from me. 
I may live the rest of my days with this thorn, whatever the thorn is. Don't even get caught up in what the thorn was. But the fact is, is I'm going to live in peace and my prayer will grow larger. Number three, and I'm finished. He gives us pain to increase His power. Not our power, His power. You might want to jot this down. There's no record in all of Paul's writings right up to the last letter that he wrote, young Timothy handing the baton off to him, and that is this. God never turned off the pain, but we know He turned up the grace. He never turned off the pain, but he did turn up the grace. He never took away the thorn, but he did turn up the grace. Verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient. Enough. My, God's grace, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So God did answer his prayer. He just didn't give him the answer that he wanted. He wanted the thorn gone. The thorn stayed. When the thorn stayed, he said, listen, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. And then he uses this word weakness again. Therefore, that I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. There it is again. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me for, uh, for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God wants to pour his powerful grace into your life to where you can't live your life without him. But the problem is we're so self-sufficient, so self-made, so, so autonomous in our own rights and choices and decisions that we don't, we don't allow space margin for God to enter, be in there because we want an answer to this. And if God didn't answer it my way at my time, then I'm leaving God. Again, if I can quote one more time from Keller, God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, he gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything he knows. Wow. Am I willing to trust his plan, his way? I told you a few weeks ago about a thorn, a pain that I've had in my life for a lot of years I went. I was looking forward to going to school, kindergarten, and the, and, and the whole nine yards until I got there. My older brother would come home. He's three years older than me. He would talk about school, all the big things you got to do, the recesses, the gym classes, all that kind of stuff. I was excited to go to school. School sounded fun to me. And then I got in school and in kindergarten when I didn't know my ABCs, it all of a sudden was not fun anymore. And it would not be easy for the rest of my years of school. It never became easy and it never necessarily became fun. And it wasn't until I became adult that I began to understand what dyslexia was. And even to this day, I'm trying to put my arms around it. But it's actually basically what happens in the brain is that there's less gray matter. There's fewer brain cells inside because the neurons that when the baby is still developing in the womb, the neurons that were supposed to go to this part of the brain don't make it to that part of the brain. They're MIA, and so they don't get there. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath, 
he put it like this. When you take a dyslexic and you put him in a CAT scan, it says, it looks like this in his words. The scan looks like an aerial photo of a city during a blackout. I've got some really good friends that are going to have fun with this. Mike doesn't have gray matter. Mike's missing some neurons and the lights are not on upstairs. So I said it, I loaded your gun. Feel free to shoot it at me. At first, I was scared when God called me to do what I'm doing in front of you, in front of people. I said, God, you can't use me. God, you wouldn't use me. I've never read a book. I, I, I tell you, whenever I was in 10th grade, 11th grade, I hadn't read a book since Green Eggs and Ham. And I used this dyslexia as a crutch. And yet God called me into a place that an old retired pastor who's probably not even alive anymore told me in the very beginning, he said, Mike, you're going to have to learn to like to learn and learn to like to read. I hated those two things. I hated them. And I knew that where I was going, it was going to require a a 10 to 12 page paper every week that I would write out and research. I knew that it would take hours and hours of reading that would be a struggle for me. I knew I would have to write. I mean, I'd much rather dig a ditch than write. And oh gosh, why all of this? Why don't you, if you're going to call me, why don't you let me not have this? And I can tell you, and I don't have time, I really don't have time to tell you the transformation of my heart to realize that I will always have dyslexia, I will always struggle, I will always have to push through, I will always have to work twice as hard as the person next to me in the area of reading and and, and rational thinking. I will always struggle. But I can tell you this, I am rejoicing today. Because it has made me a better person having dyslexia. It has made me weaker, but at the same time, more dependent. I can say with David, and this is where we're going to end, and this is the verse you need to memorize this week. It was good for me to be afflicted. Say that with me. It was good for me to be afflicted. God wants to do so much in your life, but you may, be have, you may be the one who has to get out of the way. Would you bow your heads with me? We've listed off pains. We've lifted off sorrows. We've talked about injustice. We've talked about suffering. And there's not going to be an easy rap on any of this. And I wish that if I told you, you prayed three times, you prayed fervently, and you prayed specifically that God will answer every one of your prayers. The sad reality is we know that that's not the case. So, maybe today, you need someone to pray with you and say, God, change my attitude. For the area that I am suffering, the area that I have all manner of anger towards you, God, and someone else or whatever. I need to know the grace 
that Paul spoke of that I need in my life. I'm going to pray, and our prayer partners will be around the room. And I just encourage you maybe to go to one or two of them and just pray. Just say, hey, would you pray for me? Would you just wrap God's loving arms around me and just, just, just pray for me? Father God, you know our hearts, you know our pains, you know our life. And Lord, I hope that we can say in the hour, in the day that we live, it was good for me to be afflicted. As, as, as Paul was somehow able to reach down and to look at all of his weakness, 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 and yet say, it is good because your grace is sufficient. Lord, may your grace be sufficient in us today. Where we try to do it ourselves, may we stop and give it to you. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us during this time?